0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Reyes Bertolin, and I am your host today. With me on the other side of the microphone is Dr. Jessica Romney, Assistant Professor of Classics at McEwan University in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Jessica received her PhD from Bristol University in the UK, And is here today to talk to us about her recent book, Lyric, Poetry, and Social Identity in Archaic Greece, published by the University of Michigan Press in 2020. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So I, I have a few questions for you, and I'm just going to let you talk as much as you wish. All right. So, well. Let's get started. Um, So my first question is about your choice of studying Greek lyric. Because usually when one talks about uh, Greek literature, one thinks about epic or tragedy, but lyric is always in the side, and yet you made it the subject of your thesis. So why that choice of lyric?
0: Yeah, so lyric is it's a little known, especially archaic lyric because it's so fragmentary um, and it's short, um, it's incomplete, it doesn't get the big press like epic, um, but because it's sort of on the fringes of this you know popular known canon, I, I feel like when we look at questions using lyric as our source model, or source material, we can uh, get at our answers um, in you know, really interesting ways. Um, this is an v- incredibly diverse body of literature. Right? The, the content ranges from you know, very dry, erudite advice on how to behave and think about the world, all the way to invective and scatological and sexual narratives. Um, so it's sort of a, a no-holds-barred genre of literature um, that is really exciting. Um, so it's it's fun, right? It's a fun genre. It's an interesting genre, and we can ask a lot of questions of it. Um, for, for my study, too, um, one of the reasons why I focused on Lyric so much is because when we look at the, the production of ancient genres. So when we look at epic or tragedy, for example, you know they had very wide audiences in terms of who's listening and watching these productions, um, right? Like the entire city of Athens is packing into the theater of Dionysus in order to watch a tragedy. Um, and we have stories of epic bards, you know, with large audiences going around. You have festivals for epic bards. Um, but the number of people who can actually perform an epic or write a tragedy or a comedy and let alone write but produce a tragedy or a comedy are quite small, uh, right? And we think about the the rates of survival. We have three tragedians from Athens whose work survives in any um, sense of completeness, right? We have complete tragedies, but not the complete body of work. We have one comedian um, whose body of work survives um, with complete uh, comedies from classical Athens. Um, and epic, it's, it's, again, it's a very small sample size. But then we look at lyric poetry and there are still restrictions on who can compose and perform and write lyric because you have to have the cultural... Um, like you have to be educated, you have to have um, enough economic capital to participate in these performance venues. Um, But otherwise, anyone can perform lyric. You just have to be able to put words to a beat. Um, So the level of um, the restrictions um, to participate in this body of poetry are far smaller for Lyric than they are for something like epic or tragedy or comedy. Um, And because of that, even though this is a very fragmentary body of work, we have far more voices from Lyric than we have from epic and tragedy. Um, So when we're looking at how identities are being crafted and thought about and what it means to be a part of a social group or a political group to interact with other human beings in a social setting, Lyric is, is a, Line because we have all of these different voices that are interacting in a shared environment, talking about the same basic thing of how do we behave as a, as a human member of a group. And we don't get that with Epic. We get one person's view on how human societies work. Um, or with tragedy, we have three people's view of how human societies work and identities work. Um, so Lyric is actually... Um, while it's still a difficult genre, it's it's a really useful genre in this respect for the, those types of questions. Um, and, yeah, and it's so, it's, you know, there are different reasons why I got into it, but ultimately I think I fixated on lyric because I just, I just enjoy reading it. So that's what got me into classics and it's still sort of my favorite thing about Greek literature.
1: Yeah, oh, I love Greek poetry, like Greek lyric. Yeah, the archaic poetry, I mean, I love Homer, but yeah, there is something about the fragmentary nature, no, that, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And yeah, and I mean, and we both know that Lyric was performed in the setting of the symposium. Can you explain a little bit how that worked and how symposia worked and the role of poetry in them? Sure, yeah. Yeah.
0: So a a symposium in the archaic period, so roughly 750 to um, the 490s, 480s BC. Um, So in this period, a symposium was a small gathering of elite men who were friends or kin, um, and it was an after-dinner drinking party. So there would be snacks, but the focus was on on consuming wine in a social setting. Everyone reclined on couches, it was a rough circle, the the wine bowl was in the middle of the room. Um, And these events would sort of range in tone from fairly serious to the ancient equivalent of a frat party. Um, And during them, while the wine is going around, um, there would also be um, conversation there would be debates, um, poetry would be performed, and then there would be sort of games of skill or drinking games. Um, and how the balance went would depend on the event who was participating and so forth. So lyric poetry was performed as part of this spoken entertainment or the spoken component of the symposium. And it was, um, there were sort of t- two or three options for, for performing. Um, the elegiac poems, so poems in um, elegiac couplets, they were often accompanied by a young woman who would have been hired or would have been a household slave uh, who was playing the aulas or the double flute. And so there was sort of a set rhythm that the speaker would then um, sort of chant, like somewhat sing uh, their poem to. Um, the, the iambic poems, which were usually the uh, abuse poems, some of them would, it seems that some of them could be accompanied by the aulas, but it also, you didn't have to be accompanied with them. There's a debate on whether or not iambus was musically accompanied. Um, and then the final option was the most difficult. Um, and that was, uh, the lyric, uh, meters where the singer would also perform on, um, one of the various lyres, um, that the Greeks had, and there are a couple of different shapes. And so there, the songs were sung, um, and they were self-accompanied, um, and poets or participants had, again, a range of options where they could, uh, recite or sing songs that they had learned um or that they had um picked up from somebody else they could compose their own or they could sort of riff on what the previous um speaker or singer had had offered Um, and the the sort of from the way um like activities in the symposium are talked about um it is very likely that for most um, sort of competitions or like conversations, you would follow the wine cup. So the the wine was sort of served to the right, um, whether from a jug or a cup would be passed around. Um, And it seems that the the conversation or the songs would follow it. Um, The exception to this is the most difficult game called the scolion or the crooked game. And uh, this is where it would bounce around the room, sort of like you'd point at somebody and then they'd have to pick up from you. Um, and this is where a lot of the riffing would take place. Um, and yeah, so the, so the, the lyric for poems were performed as the sort of oral component to the symposium. Um, to go along with the, the wine um, and to sort of um, alternate with the, with the games. Um, now in the towards the end of the archaic period and into the classical period, uh, this starts to change, particularly in Athens, um, because the symposium in the archaic period, um, because it requires large amounts of wine, uh, it like, usually a couple of craters of wine, so large mixing bowls before you then mix in the water. Um, we have their are comic fragments, so grain of salt, but there are comic fragments that suggest up to ten craters of wine can be consumed in a single night. A <laughs> how many liters?
1: Do we um, know about how many liters?
0: Oh, I don't I don't know what I'm not sure what the standard leader measurement for a crater is, um, but they they're big. Um, like some of them are like I think they can get up to like a couple, like three, three feet tall and then also quite wide. So like they're substantial measures Um but yeah, a lot, so a lot of wine. A lot of wine was required um, and was consumed. And then you also had to have a space for it, whether an indoor space or an outdoor space. Um, and or there's some evidence that people would um, go to sanctuaries. that So it might require renting space. Um, and then you had to um, have... Um, Because of the way you reclined, leaning on your left arm and holding your wine cup in your right arm, you then had to have slaves to um, mix and serve the wine. So there's a lot of economic requirements to hosting a symposium. Um, In addition to then you had to show your education in the spoken components, which, again, is um, a marker of high economic status. So the symposium in the Archaic period is an elite Institution, and it is used to develop and promote elite culture across the Greek world. So what happens in the classical period in Athens is um, as part of the sort of awkward and fits and starts of figuring out how the elites of Athens interact and relate to the demos with the institution of Athenian democracy, um, the symposium starts to be democratized, um, and so the, um, in the building programs after the Greco-Persian Wars, there are sort of public dining rooms that and symposium rooms that become available. Um, there are um, cheaper versions of all of the sympotic cups that are made available by potters, um, and the sort of oral component of the symposium seems to become less and less important and the sort of games um, and tests of skill um, and then hired entertainment start to become more important Um, and then as that popular element is coming in to democratize the symposium the leads start doing their own thing. so they go back to focusing on meals on food um, on rich diets that ordinary people can't can't uh, um, access. So um, this sort of heyday of lyric as a sympotic performance element really starts to drop off um, following the Greco-Persian wars in Athens. Um, and we don't really have evidence for it outside of Athens. Um, so it's hard to
1: tell whether or not it's continuing there. Okay, so thank you very much and yeah now I want to talk a little bit more now um, directly about your book and I mean the title of your book is is identity <laughs> no, um, <laughs> okay. so um I was wondering you know in in nowadays when we talk about identity when we talk about group identity we tend to identify this with certain political um, ideologies. And when we talk about individual identity, again, we talk about other uh, contrary um, ideologies. Um, so how do you go around that without falling into modern um, categories?
0: Yeah, it's it's a big issue. Um, and it's something, you know, you, we always have to be careful of not to impose the like modern ways of behaving and thinking about the world on ancient evidence, especially fragmentary evidence, because it's so tempting to fill in those holes that we, that we have. Um, So the way I started approaching it was I decided very early on in this project that I was not going to touch individual identity with a 10 foot pole. Um, in part because, um, one, the sources just don't allow us to access it. Um, there, the, even when poets speak as an eye in lyric poetry, it is not a biographical eye. It is, it is a persona, um, that has varying degrees of connection to, to the poet's in, sense of self as an individual. Um, So we just don't have the evidence to sustain a discussion of personal identity or of individual identity. The other reason is because um, when you look at the scholarship on identity and theorizing of identity, there is really good evidence to suggest that the way we talk about individual identity today is something that we cannot talk about certainly before um the protestant reformation uh, possibly not even um, before the french revolution um, and because both of those uh, events radically change how individuals think about themselves in relation to larger social and political entities um, so there's, there's that issue. And so I decided I wasn't going to talk about individual identity. Um, and I think, and I still think that was the right decision to make. And I'm highly skeptical of anything that says we can access an individual level of identity crafting in the classical period uh, or the um, ancient world, ancient Mediterranean world. Um, the other way I did it was tried to... Uh, stop from imposing modern um, categories of around identity onto the ancient evidence was um, just being very, very careful um, about the contextualization of the material of the poems in what we know of the, the historical and social moment that they were operating in. Um, And this is difficult for the Archaic period um, because we don't have um, a sort of strong overall archeological record for Archaic Greece, um, partially because a lot of the major cities are still occupied today. Um, And there's not a lot of space to actually excavate. Um, And this is the problem with the poetry of Alcaeus and Sappho is that their home city of Mytilene has been a major city since before Alcaeus and Sappho were alive. And you you can get a couple of two by two meter um, pits, but that's not gonna tell you much. Um, So we have that issue. We don't have historical sources, right? Our first historian is Herodotus. So he's a couple hundred years after some of these poets. Um, And so we don't have that sort of historical record in the way that we do for the classical period. But with all of that, we do have enough that um, we can sort of, you know, work back, um, use the archaeological record and then look at the sort of overall picture of what's going on in a particular city in the archaic period in a region and in the Greek world as a whole and use that to contextualize the um, lyric poems um, and to sort of serve as a check to say, okay, I think this is what's going on in the poetry. Does it make sense in this historical moment that we're dealing with? And this is something that I think is particularly important for archaic material, regardless of whether or not we're studying identity. It's a fragmentary period, regardless of what, how we're coming at it. And there is a tendency to read the archaic period as obviously ending up in the classical period, right? That everything in the archaic period is directing towards the classical period and in particular classical Periclean Athens. Um, And we need to resist that tendency because Periclean Athens is not the logical end point of the archaic period Um, and I think you know the approach I took which is to like really focus on what the sources are saying um, and then to check what they're saying against the larger regional and social context that they're operating in as a way of making sure that we're not reading things into the poems and checking them against each other right read um, so reading Solon not against his Athenian, like, uh, I guess, descendants, all right, not against Pericles or Demosthenes, but reading Solon against Tertius, reading Solon against Theognis and Alcaeus, uh, because those are his peers. Um, and yeah, really checking the period against the period and not against what came before, came after, is something that we need to do for the archaic period in general. And then when we're dealing with something like identity that has such important balance today,
1: it's even more important to do that. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, I mean, your book is not just about identity. It's also about poetry and how poetry creates identity. And, and one of the obvious examples um, is, of course, martial poetry, but, I mean, Homer, the Iliad, is also martial poetry, um, and yet um, it's very different tone than what we see in the martial poetry of, of the archaic period. Uh, it, it seems to me that Homer is more about the individual, perhaps the archaic period. The poetry is more about um, the community or the group. Um, am I correct in that assumption, or... What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, it's um, so it's interesting because yeah, so the the Iliad um, is sort of roughly at about the same time that all of these martial elegies are sort of coming out, and they are very clearly dealing with the same tradition of martial poetry and martial values, um, but they're coming at that tradition from different directions. Um, so the The Iliad uh, is really concerned with individual heroic excellence um, and also how this affects the community, but it's, you know, when we look at whose excellence in warfare is of concern, it's the individual heroes. Um, That being said, we do see mass fighting in the Iliad, right? The the heroes will fight as a group individually, but as a group, and then the the mass of Achaeans um, or if the Greek forces back in them up, fight in sort of this like proto hoplite style. Um, so there, there is that sort of group mass fighting in the Iliad, even though it's concerned with individual um, heroic antics. Uh, Elegy is sort of the flip of that. Right? It is engaging with the reality of hoplite, early hoplite style warfare, where you cannot have an individual fighting, There's There's no room for individualism in the phalanx because as soon as that happens, the line breaks and then the entire phalanx is destabilized and a threat. And so elegy is, um, it's actually in this really difficult spot because it's dealing with a martial tradition that up until recently has been all about the individual heroics of like a group of heroes with their their backup um, fighters um, who are fighting like a phalanx, but it, you know it's been dealing with the individuals. And then elegy has to say, okay, now we have to focus on the backup band, but in a way that all of these elites who have you know grown up on these epics of individual heroism, Um, in a way that we don't lose those elites because we need them to hold the front line because they're the only ones who are fully armored. Um, So in in directly engaging with this, the the fighting style that has developed and becomes the hoplite phalanx where everyone has to move as one and behave as one, uh, Elegy is is stuck really sort of balancing this, this tradition that it's inherited. Um, with the the new world of Greek fighting, um, and so what I argue is that one of the ways it does this is by sort of anonymizing the hero, right, and making it seem like anybody can be the hero, regardless of what your social or economic status is, while putting in enough clues um, in Tertius's poetry, at least. Um, that would suggest that, like, yeah, sure, anybody could be the hero, but we all know that it's only the elites in the front rows. Um, but they are, you know, they are definitely in in discussion with each other. But um, elegy's sort of placement in the real world, right? Not dealing with um, the epics of Greek myth, mean that it it can't ignore the physical reality of the battlefield. And the fact that, you know, there there are visible status distinctions um, that can cause a difficulty for that phalanx and looking at those who have full armor and those who only have a shield. Um, so it's, it's it's got a much more difficult balancing act to do than Epic does in dealing with the martial tradition um, that both are
1: using in their,
0: their poetry. Yeah,
1: thank you. Thank you. And of course, another uh, um, a theme between the epic and the lyric is is the theme of memory, you no. Know? And and so memory as the source of poetry. Um, so I was wondering how memory not only creates poetry but also creates identity. We don't hear that in the in the epic, uh, you no. Know, but but. Uh, Apparently, <laughs> you know, According to to uh, your research, memory is one of the sources for creating identity. So, how does it um, happen in the in the lyric poetry?
0: Yeah, it's a um, you know, memory is an, an interesting one because yeah, it's the the whole sort of impetus for the epic heroes, right, It's to be remembered and to be remembered in poetry, um, and you know, Tertius, um, Sparta's martial poet, has this fantastic line in his 12th fragment where he, he lays claim to that tradition, right? When he says, I would not remember a man nor recall him in speech or in verse um, unless he has the ability to stand in battle. Um, so it really, like, throws down the gauntlet um, to adhere to the, the sort of criteria for being a soldier, for being a warrior and adopting the specific martial criteria for that group that Tirtaeus lays out. Um, so Tirtaeus does it quite explicitly. Right? He is very clearly controlling access to memorialization. Right? He will only remember those who fit his criteria. That means that if you want to be in that group, you have to fit those criteria um, and who doesn't want to be remembered. So it's a very powerful strategy that way for, for getting adherence to a group. Um, but we also, you know, see it in a, a few different ways. Um, you know, so um, and this is, you know, memory comes into it because the, the stories a group tells about their past are really indicative of how they think about themselves in the now, Um, but also they reflect the ways, um, sorry. Yeah. And so in that they reflect the ways that the group is, is conceiving of themselves. So it's sort of a, a less active strategy, but then um, on the more active side, um, they are also, you know, the way, What a group says about themselves is critical for defining who they are in the now. So that's the active side of things. Um, So we look at the active strategy um, and how groups use the past to define themselves. um, One of the poems I talk about is um, Alcaeus 129. And this is his poem where he calls on the gods of a, of a shrine that the, the poet's we is in. Um, and he calls on the gods of the shrine to um, bear witness to the fact that the group was not an oath breaker, but that they were betrayed by a former friend um, who is called the son of Hieras and has since been identified as the, the lesbian or the Middelenian tyrant Pitacus, um, and so Alcaeus calls on these gods to recognize that Pitacus broke this oath, that he betrayed the group, um, and that the group would have succeeded on their oath had they not been betrayed. Um, and this is an active form of remembering the past in a particular fashion it's only Pitacus is guilty here there's no question that there's any other infidelity amongst the group everyone else is united they all have the same goal they all have the same task all have the same values it's only Pitacus that is the problem here Um, and one of the things I argue is that it probably wasn't only Pitacus because it would have been Pitacus and all of his buddies his male kin like he would have had supporters but in order for the group to maintain itself as a group, and this idea that everyone is the same and that they all have the same task, you have to ignore those other people who betrayed the group. So Alcaeus retells this oath in a way that is beneficial to the group staying as a group in the present, right? So the memory of that event is being altered to suit the present. Um, When we look at how memory um, sort of reflects the way groups think about themselves in the present, um, you know, one of the really interesting things is it's sort of, um, and this isn't in the lyric poems itself, but it's how they are used later on. And that's how the Athenians use Solon. Um, so Solon's poetry um, after the restoration of the democracy in Athens in, in 403 BCE is used to sort of highlight Athenian democracy as going all the way back to Solon. Um, and it sort of presents the Athenians with this this um, in, uh, this ancestral identity of these sort of moderate, you know, thoughtful, um, Consider them, yeah, sort of politically considerate um, people. Um, and this is how Demosthenes uses Solon um, when he um, sent Demosthenes um, on the false embassy, when he accuses Iskenes of misappropriating um, the image of Solon in his speeches um, and Demacis sa- essentially says, you do not remember Solon correctly unless you do not use him correctly. And because you do not use Solon correctly, you are not a true Athenian because you have not um, sort of embedded the, the true meaning of Solon in his, his reforms and his poetry, which is moderate service to Athens and always to Athens and so there, the, the memory Demosthenes is invoking of Solon and the way he's using his poetry is reflecting how the Athenians are, are thinking of themselves in the now, right? As this sort of temperate, moderate people who have an ancestral democracy that supports that sort of balanced, temperate um, idea. So yeah, so memory is very key, Key to identity because it um, secures a, uh, the way groups define themselves in the present by kicking it back to the past, and by doing so, it makes it seem as if the current identity, the cor- current form of the identity in question, has been stable and secure for. Years, if not hundreds of years, right? It's been eternal um, and thus the identity is more um, its more um, persuasive in that form um, when in fact, right? Identities are constantly shifting to suit the situation, but by attaching it to memories or to ideas of the past, then it gives us stability to the memory. And poets can do this through the active strategies that like Alcaeus and Tertius do. Um, or it can they can access it by sort of reflecting the present through the past.
1: Yeah, I guess things haven't changed much, no? Since that's still what we are doing nowadays. Yeah, it, and the more things change,
0: the more they say the same. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um so my next question is about Sparta, because well, part of the martial poetry that that um, is very important in, in your book. You know, part of the martial poetry that we have relates to Sparta. But when we study the ancient world, there is always the question about how good of an example is Sparta. You know? And, and this, is, this is a huge debate. Is Sparta an exception, or can we find continuity in the other cities? Um, so, so where do you stand in here in this question? You know? can, is really Sparta a good model for to study Greeks?
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, that is the question. Um, yeah, you know, my first response to to the, the the Sparta question is also well. If we're gonna doubt Sparta as a model city, which we should, uh, we should also doubt Athens, right? Neither of them are sort of typical Greek cities, uh, from what we can tell from the uh, the various records that we have uh, for the ancient Greek world. Um, Now, that being said, um, I, you know, with the exception continuity thing, it's a bit of both, right? So, um, and this this holds for Athens as well as Sparta. Um, Both cities are exceptional in that they have control over large areas of territory, um sparta has um you know a a slave population under the helots but they're not unique in that there are other greek uh, cities that also have sort of um serf or slave populations um under a citizen population um Sparta is unusual in the level of militarization that we see in the city um, amongst its citizens, but when that militarization gets going on sort of the crazy level that we associate with it, um, you know that that seems to be much later um, than you know most people think of. Right? Um, there's you know one of the things I talk about is that. Um, Sparta had a sympatic culture and it it had an elite sympatic culture that was parallel to a growing sort of citizen public mess culture. Um, But they weren't uh, in opposition to one another, Um, even though one dies out as the other grows, you know, a lot of the elite elements that we see in other cities that used to be denied to Sparta, Um, because the idea was that starting with the Lycurgian constitution and the control of the Helots, Sparta sort of became fully militarized and fully austere. And that's since been sort of disproven that the argument is, can be made that Sparta didn't go full militarized crazy until after the the Helot revolt in 464 BC. So, you know, before then, you know, Sparta is odd, but there's a lot of continuity with other Dorian Greeks uh, with other Greek cities. Um, you know, S- Sparta is participating in elite culture in ways that are familiar and from other cities. Um, and in fact, in the archaic period, it's more of a sort of big player city than the Athenians are. And Athens is a backwater in the seventh and sixth centuries um, Sparta is not. It's a. It's got a burgeoning elite culture. It's got an artistic culture. Um, there's an ivory carving school out of Athens, or sorry, out of Sparta, not Athens, out of Sparta um, that has ties with Phoenicia. Um, so it's got those Eastern contacts, like other cities like Corinth and Nubia. Um, so there's a lot to suggest that Sparta is an odd city in that it has control over you know a sort of an enslaved population in a neighboring territory, Um, but that otherwise, you know, it's participating in a lot of the same features of being a Greek city that the other Greek cities are. After the Greco-Persian Wars and certainly after the Helot Revolt in 464, and when we get into the Peloponnesian War, we do see more of an ossification of Sparta as this unique city that has idiosyncratic features that aren't seen in the other uh, Greek cities. Um, a lot of this is coming from Athens um, because it is part of Athens's rhetorical position after the Greco-Persian Wars to in its bid for gaining hegemony in Greece. Um, it's seen in other authors, um, Herodotus, in his treatment of Sparta certainly points out a lot of contact uh, parallels that Sparta has culturally with the um, with uh, cities or peoples in Asia, by which he means Anatolia and West Asia, um, as well as the Egyptians. Um, how much of that is coming from Athenian sources versus Herodotus's own interactions with Spartans is difficult to tell um, or other sources. Um, but he definitely does present Sparta as a foreign city amongst the other Greeks. It's the only city to get an ethnography, even though it's short. Um, so we do see this, this idea of Sparta as foreign coming about in the classical period. And the Athenians are 100% running with it, pushing it. Um, and the Spartans, for their part, you know, seem to, because they have fewer citizen men, uh, they have a birth rate problem, um, because of the Helot revolt, they, they doubled down on the military emphasis that they have in the classical period. Um, and it may also be in reaction to Athens, though it's difficult to tell because we don't have any written sources from Sparta in the classical period uh, since they were allergic to writing things down. Um, so it's a very long answer to say. Um, you know, I think... You know i think sparta is is worth studying um even though it is you know in this weird spot of being similar and different it's it's in the same spot athens is, and if we're going to study athens despite it being similar and different we should still study sparta um, while being aware of these sort of foreignizing narratives that are coming out of the athenians mouths about sparta um you know, there's, I don't think there's such thing as a typical Greek polis. They all seem to quite happily do their own thing and then castigate their neighbors for not doing the same things as them um, or for trying to do the same things and doing them poorly. Uh, so this, you know, I think if nothing else, Sparta is a good reminder that the, the ways of political and social organization that the ancient Greek cities could come up with uh, were manifold um, and that we shouldn't be using one to explain the other.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, I also have another question about um, the political situation in many of these cities where poetry was produced. No, in many of these cities, we find that the ruler was a tyrant. And of course, tyrant in our days has very negative connotations. It wasn't Necessarily the same in the ancient world, but how do you see the tyrant as promoter, creator of identity?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question uh, because yeah, so the the tyrants in the archaic period were were overall pretty pretty good. They were you know good leaders, right? They're effective rulers, um, and if only because. Um, When a tyrant came into power, um, a lot of his rivals or opponents would um, either be forced into exile or they would go into voluntary exile um, rather than suffer the rule of a a single man. Um, And of course, which is part of where we get all of this bad press on the archaic tyrants is because their opponents wrote very good poetry um, uh, castigating those tyrants. <laughs> um, and this is, this is what we see with Alcaeus and Pittacus right? Pitticus has a bad reputation entirely because of Alcaeus, um, and then sort of been resuscitated as, as the wisdom tradition around Pitycus has come out that points out that he was actually like a really good guy for Metellini. Um, so I think with identity, what the tyrants... Uh, facilitate um and what they facilitate is the strengthening of polis identities so um in the symposium we don't see a lot uh, or in sympathetic poetry we don't see a lot of city names um you know there's i think there's maybe five city references in all of archaic uh, lyric maybe 10 um and that's hundreds of fragments, um, you know. And so, with, there's not a lot of of names now. This might be because of the desire for reperformance, right? It's easier to reperform something if you don't have to replace a city name. Um, but it also just may be that um, when it came down to defining groups for the elites who were performing this poetry. Um, you know, their city identity was important because that's where their citizenship is based, but ultimately what's more important is the elite group that is supporting them and that they're participating with in driving their political vision for the city. Um, Most archaic cities before the tyrants seem to have been narrow aristocracies. Um, So there would have been assemblies and magistrates, but it would have been run by elite families. And then when the tyrants come in, um, and then are eventually ousted, what replaces the tyrant is not the narrow aristocracy of before the tyrant, but a, a broader based assembly based government. So more people are able to sit in the assembly, um, if not hold magistracies. So what the tyrants do is they sort of break the elite hold on political power and, Successful tyrants who are able to found dynasties. Um, so, the Pisistratids in Athens, uh, the Arthagorids in Sicyon, um, there's a few different um, dynasties. Uh, what they seem to be able to do is to sort of create this idea, this citizen identity that is tied to the polis. Um, And they do this through building programs, through festivals. Um, So the Pisistradids in Athens, for example, are are very closely tied to the Panathenaic Festival, which celebrates um, Athena as the patron goddess of Athens, right, and is part of the polis's identity. Um, So... Yeah, so in, in creating a political base that is secure, the tyrants seem to be able to access or to create this idea of a citizen body is attached to the polis, um, which the elites don't seem to be really concerned about, because that's not where their power lies. Um, you know, They're concerned about their citizenship and their citizen identity, because that's where their agency is. Um, but... As far as identity goes, it doesn't seem to be as salient as it is after the tyrants. Um, but it is, it is a you know, I, there's something going on there with the tyrants. But unfortunately, it's 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 hard to access. But it is something that um, I think would be really interesting to look more at to see how they they feature in this process.
1: Yeah. No. Thank you. Thank you. And um, so I just had one last question about. Solon you known as the poet politician <laughs> contemporary to the tyrants. Um, we don't call him a tyrant. I don't know why, <laughs> but yeah. But yeah. So I had the last question about Solon um, creating Athenian identity as we see later on, but I mean, you've mentioned Solon already. I don't know if you want to add something else.
0: Yeah. Uh, Solon's an interesting one. Yeah. Um... Because he he behaved like a tyrant, Um, but he insisted very very emphatically uh, that he was not a tyrant and did not want to be one, even though people were asking him to be one. Uh, So I think he I think he would fit um, uh, the category that Aristotle sort of pulls out to explain Pittacus, which is the Isumnates or the appointed uh, tyrant. Right? So they have legitimate authority unlike the other tyrants who got up based on charisma and do not have legitimate authority. And of course because the Iomtes is legitimately appointed, they are a better tyrant than the illegitimately appointed tyrants. Um, so but Solon and Pittacus have a lot of similarities in that and um, yeah, Solon's an interesting one. it's um, you know I joke that, You know, I spent the entire, when I was writing my dissertation, that the entire period that I was working on the chapter on Solon, I spent it bashing my head against my edition of his poetry um, because there's a lot that people say is going on in Solon's poetry that I do not think we can justify is going on, uh, that I think is coming from 4th century and later usages of Solon Uh, following the claims um, that democracy is the ancestral constitution of Athens and thus the Athenians should be allowed to reinstitute it um, in accordance with their peace treaty with Sparta after the end of the Peloponnesian War. Um, So Solon's poetry very clearly lays out a political identity for those who would follow Solon. And it's based on the image Solon creates for himself as a moderate politician who's sort of um, being attacked on all sides, right? The the rich aren't happy with him. The elites aren't happy with him. The poor aren't happy with him. Um, Everybody wants something that is inappropriate for their station in life. And they thought that Solon would give it to them. But now that he hasn't, because he has given to everyone things in accordance with their station, everyone is mad at him. Um, And this is sort of the image we get of Solon in Herodotus when Herodotus says that Solon leaves so that the Athenians can come to terms with his laws. Um, And then he goes and has his famous moment with Croesus where he says, call no man happy until he is dead. Um, So I think Solon creates a political identity for himself. Um, and for his groups, that is very persuasive in the moment. Um, As for a new identity for Athens, I do not think Solon gives the Athenians a new identity until 403, Um, and this is because when you look at the historical record, um, you know, after Solon uh, gets his laws in, whether it's during his archonship or later, it's unclear when his legal reforms went through, After Solon gets his laws through, uh, they don't work. There is political instability. Um, If Aristotle's constitution of the Athenians is to be believed, there's somebody who holds on to the archonship for several years before he um, is able to get it back. Um, And then uh, we have Pisistratus, uh, who becomes tyrant after several years of political uh, fight or of stasis, of civil war, political strife with two other groups in Athens. So we have sort of a three way civil war um, that uh, is on and off for several years, right? Pisistratus has three stabs at the tyrant. Uh, being tyrant, that don't hold until the third attempt. And then his son becomes tyrant after him. And then there is another civil war um, after Paesistratus' son is deposed um, that then results in Cleisthenes getting support from the people by instituting democracy. So Solon gives the Athenians laws um, and his legal code does replace Draco's It's a great legal code. It's used for a while. It keeps getting updated. But he doesn't actually change how the Athenians do politics. Um, And his sort of vision of the Athenians is governed by eunomia or good order that he presents in uh, Fragment 4 is sort of ignored. Right? If, he's, if he's being sent to teach the Athenians about good order, he did a very poor job of it um, because it's not until you know almost 100 years later that the Athenians get anything close to it. Um, without tyrants, right? Pisistratus brings good order in, but he does it by obviously being a tyrant. Right? He doesn't back away from that position. So, yeah, so I would say that Solon himself... Does actually is highly unsuccessful um, in what he claims that he is trying to do. Um, it is only with Pisistratus that his laws really are able to have any effect because there is a stable political situation that is able to then back up the legal component of Solon's reforms. Um, but that you know, when the Athenians lose the Peloponnesian War and the Spartans say, OK, you have to get rid of the democracy and go back to your ancestral constitution um, with the 30 tyrants you know, who are supposed to find this ancestral constitution, very clearly not trying to find the ancestral constitution and instead just to accumulate all the power they can. Um, Solon's reforms and poetry then offered a way for the Athenians to say, look, there's another form of democracy that we haven't been talking about. And it's this vision that Solon gives us. And so then Solon is able to give the Athenians a sense of self, um, based in this sort of moderate idea of democracy. Um, that is, you know, in some ways very different from that of Cleisthenes. Um, in other ways, like, you know, you, I don't think you can have with without Solon, um, least not in the form we see it um, but yeah so after 403 he certainly gives the Athenians um, a way to define themselves politically um, in a way that is conducive with the fifth century and with the, the very, very strong identification of Athens as a group, as the, the Athenians, as a people, um, as a people of democracy, right? um, that this radical government is what defines Athens as such. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's sort of a, um, I'm trying to think here what the word is, um, He's, he's a bridge. He's a bridge of taking what has become central to Athenian identity, right? the, the democratic reforms um, and the way democracy grows up after Cleisthenes, under Pericles, and then during the Peloponnesian War. So we of bridging that with the post-Peloponnesian War situation, um, post-30 tyrants, where there's a need for political stability. Um, and... Yeah, so in that sense, he's quite useful, but in the archaic period, I don't think he's nearly as successful as we have been saying he was.
1: Yeah, no, I never thought about that, but yeah, of course, most of the laws that we attribute to Solon, they were not Solons.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and you know, the the other problem with Solon's laws, um, they were written on wooden boards, and in 480 and 479, the Persians burned Athens twice. Um, so, like, we might have had Solon's laws, but they they were gone in one of the two conflagrations, if not both. Um, so, what then gets attributed to Solon is people remembering those those laws, and eventually, I think they do get written on a more permanent material. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of debate about what exactly were the laws of Solon, because um, they were written on perishable materials in a city that was ransacked twice in a very short
1: period. Yes. Then again, no, if we think about the Iliad being also written, it probably was burned at the time, too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, yeah not quite as bad as losing the library of Alexandria all those times, but still like it would have been nice if the Athenians had written stuff down on more permanent materials
1: before they went and kicked the Persians in the eyes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for this very interesting talk. And is there anything you want to add?
0: Uh, I guess just if, if, anyone uh, listening is interested in reading uh, these poems, um, Oxford World Classics has uh, a good translation by Martin West, uh, a lot of the more complete versions. Um, if you want to get into the um, wonderful world of all the fragments, um, the, the low classical Library's facing page translations of Greek Elegiac poets and Greek iambic poets, um, and then the lyric Greek lyric poets um, has has the full sort of complement of uh, more complete, and then all the way down to you know individual letters and possible words level of fragments. So these these are available in translation um, if people are interested in reading them because they are they are fun texts, and uh, I think they should be read more more than they are.
1: Yeah, well, thank you very much.
0: (laughs) Thank you.